Drive Time with Travis Wingfield begins now. Let me check your pulse if you're not fired up. What is up, Dolph fans, and welcome to the Drive Time Podcast, part of the Miami Dolphins Podcast Network, covering your team, your Miami Dolphins. How's it going, everybody? I am your host, Travis Wingfield, and on today's show, we're going to welcome in Daniel Oyafusi to get the Ravens' perspective. I know he works on the Dolphins' beat, but he grew up a Ravens fan. He knows that team very well. Plus, we'll hear from the assistant coaches, Vic Fangio, Frank Smith, Eric Studisville, and much, much more. We'll go ahead and pick the Week 17 games. Plus, I have a gripe to pick with regards to the conversation around talent acquisition and the GM of the Miami Dolphins. All of that and more from the Baptist Health Studios inside the Baptist Health Training Complex. This is the Drive Time Podcast. Join me in welcoming in my guest today from the Miami Herald, Daniel Oyafusi. And since it is Baltimore Ravens week, we had to welcome back to the podcast, Daniel Oyafusi, formerly of the DMV, now a beat reporter for the Miami Herald. Daniel, welcome in, my man. How was your holiday season? That was cool. It was cool. You know, I had to had to stay back home because the Dolphins played on Christmas Eve, but obviously I get to go back home for a New Year's Eve game uh, in Baltimore. Hometown meets uh, current town for you in Week 17. This has always been an intriguing matchup to me and uh, intriguing opportunity to get other perspectives on on being a sports fan who also works in sports for me the team I root for is the team that I cover so it's pretty easy but I was I was curious you know and what is journalism 101 other than being impartial and not you know being a fan in the press box so my question is how do you balance fandom and work especially in a game where your two worlds kind of collide here yeah, yeah so quick kind of background context for for those who may not know you know I'm from the Baltimore area um, you know it's no, no surprise obviously I grew up a, a big Ravens fan and then I actually got the opportunity which w- to have what was kind of a, a dream job kind of like you you know to cover the Ravens uh, for my hometown paper the Baltimore Sun so I did that for two seasons before coming to Miami uh, and, and yeah you know you never really think about it you know up until the moment you know I had a, a old professor in college who asked me like, do you really want to cover your favorite team do you really want to do that and I never thought about it um and you know you do have to kind of separate it you do have to um understand that you know there is a line you know you know I don't necessarily work for the team in that capacity um but um, I'm there to do a job and be a conduit to the fans but um you know I, I kind of used my institutional knowledge to enhance my reporting and uh now you know I, I think I've kind of leaned into it this week you know having so much knowledge on both these teams so you know you try to try to use it to your advantage honestly I saw you talk about the ice toner gloves, not knowing that story from the background. That's one of those things that is a benefit of having known the team since you were a child because you remember Dan Marino pitching ice toner gloves in South Florida and just how funny that moment was in the Hard Knocks episode. So do you, I have to imagine, you go back and watch the Ravens games, like pulling up Game Pass the next day, do you, do you go that route? So honestly, when I first got to Miami to cover the team, you know, I, I definitely wanted to stay like connected to the team and, you know, cover uh, you know watch them a little bit but just the nature of the beast with the beat you know it's really tough to do that you know I have a uh, you know former colleagues in Baltimore and uh, some writers who you know that their their word is like you no know, gospel to me so I trust them and I make sure to read them the day after but not too much you know if, uh, if the Dolphins are playing a night game or the Ravens are playing a night game maybe uh, I'll be able to watch them uh, but not too much review <laughs> honestly just the nature of the beast with this beat just doesn't allow the time that's because you're watching Jalen Ramsey's yeah I'm, I'm wa- trying to figure out his I'm coverage. watching Dolphins yeah, exactly. on 22 the day after <laughs> exactly. most definitely let's go ahead and start though here with the Ravens in the quarterback position where I always do as we get ready for this massive massive game in the AFC because for Lamar just watching his tape Daniel I think he's the best he's ever been from the pocket right now but I'm curious as someone that has watched him from first snap as a rookie up till now what have you seen in terms of 
the evolution of his game this season. Am I accurate? Is he playing better? And where do you think he has uh, kind of grown in, in his game? Yeah, it's really it's really uh, crazy to watch uh, old highlights from the 2018 season and to see how he's changed physically, he's changed mentally, like his body is different, his throwing uh, style is a little bit different. And, uh, you know, jump fast forward to now, to present day, um, with Todd Munkin at the helm taking over for Greg Roman, you're seeing um, them really give him the keys to the car. You know, he really has a mastery and ownership of the offense. So you're seeing him make checks at the line. Uh, and, and, yeah, I mean, with Todd, you know, I know that there were a lot of talks when he first entered the uh, the NFL about you know whether he should play different positions, and obviously you know he stood uh, on his grounds and he you know he was steadfast in his belief. And and as Mike McDaniel alluded to it, you know he had he's had to define define himself. So you've seen him grow and you know in just the mastery of the offense and how defenses want to uh, contain him and approach him. So we talked about this with I think Coach Fangio on Thursday with the uh, addition of the weapons they have there. We'll come back to that here in a second, but I want to talk about the change in offensive corner, like you mentioned, because I, I, you have to imagine that the shift in system has maybe had a bit of an impact in terms of how he's evolved. How is the offense, do you think, different under Todd Monk than it was Greg Roman? Yeah, so start, we have to start off with Greg Roman and how he really designed an offense in 2019 around Lamar's rushing ability. And, you know, that scheme combined with his ability was really what led him to be a unanimous MVP and to lead the NFL uh, in, in passing touchdowns. Um, but as time went went on, uh, defenses adjusted to that. They found ways to kind of uh, limit those design runs. And I think that there was such um, such a, a craving in Baltimore for them to really expand the offense, specifically the passing game, bring in some new concepts, some spacing. You know, it seemed like Lamar was kind of playing in a phone booth the past couple years. So I think that's one of the main things we've seen uh, with the introduction of of Todd Munkin's scheme. Like he's, he's retained a lot of the, the the standard gap power run schemes that has made the Ravens offense so successful. But now we're seeing more modernized passing concepts. We're seeing some space and some, some kind of like college-esque spacing uh, in terms of the splits of the wide receivers and, and whatnot. And obviously they've, they've made some changes in personnel, giving him uh, his kind of best set of receivers since he's been in the NFL. And we're seeing that uh, with some of the success that he's having in the passing game. I think there's there's some some lessons to be learned there from the Ravens' experience over the last several years because you have these great defenses, this great quarterback, these great players, but the playoffs results haven't been there, right? One and three under Lamar Jackson, they missed the playoffs one of the years that he was in there. He was injured that year, but one of the years as, as being a pro for him. But it's almost like a good example for something we've learned with the Dolphins team this year where like the Chiefs game, you know, didn't go their way. The Eagles game didn't go their way. The Buffalo game and this this whole idea of, you know, not beating the teams with winning records. Like there's something to be said about overcoming the hump. And I think I think back to like his rookie year, right? That I think it was the Chargers in the playoffs with Derwin James like matched him. They're like they, it was this revolutionary system they ran, like dime defense every rep to handle him. And then the, the loss of the Titans, it feels like the Ravens have kind of taken those experiences in the past and gotten better from them would you agree with that no most definitely and, and, and it's gradual you know it's not a lot of cases where you see a team just go from nothing to on top of the world so um you know you you learn through a lot of your experience mike mcdaniels talked about that like learning from those uh from those losses and having those be teachable moments um i think that the ravens have done that and that's why we've seen the changes uh in, in the offensive scheme and we're seeing the growth from that unit it's been fun to watch man there it's i like I know I root for the Dolphins, but there's so many things that teams do across the league. I'm just like, that's fun to watch. Like, I, I appreciate that. And the Ravens have been one of those teams for a long time now. And a big part of that is the other side of the football. And I don't even know where you start here because they're dominant at all levels. They have stars at every position. I was having a conversation with some of the guys in the, in the video room, and they were like, do they have star players? I'm like, maybe not to the casual fan, but, like, Justin Matabuike is a star. Kyle Hamilton's a star. Like, Marlon Humphrey's a star. So 
I guess we start there with a, a guy who could be a bit of a swing player, a guy that might not play in the game. What do you think the presence or absence of Kyle Hamilton could, how could that impact this potential game? Yeah, well, I saw a tweet a couple of days ago about force multipliers on the defensive side of the ball. And, you know, you have the the standard names, the household names like Miles Garrett and, and TJ Watt. But, you know, I saw a tweet that, that also mentioned Kyle Hamilton. And he's kind of evolved into that type of player. I think he's like had a, a an all-pro, maybe first-team all-pro type season. Um, I just want to bring up a stat that I found from one of my colleagues, um, Jonas Schaefer of the Baltimore Sun, um, entering the game against the 49ers, which they obviously won very handily. Um, the, the Dolphins, uh, excuse me, the Ravens had the top, offense or top defense when Kyle Hamilton is on the field, um, you know, first in, in yards per play success rate when he's off the field, you know, that drops to, to 32nd. Wow. Like, that, wow. <laughs> he has that much of, yeah. a, of a swing on this defense. And as you mentioned, it's because of the versatility and his ability to, to do so much on the field. You know, if you look back to that week two game against the Ravens, uh, against the Dolphins, um, Kyle Hamilton was a rookie. He was kind of coming into his own. The, the, the Ravens really didn't know what to do with him. You know, he played a lot of safety. Um, and he was actually involved in one of the blown coverages um, that resulted in that in that late comeback. Um, since then, they've kind of figured out like we're not going to put him in a box. We're going to allow him allow him to succeed everywhere. Um, so you see him line up at safety. You see him line up at, at nickel, which really might be his best position. You see him line up uh, on the edge uh, at linebacker, and he allows them to do so much. So like you can kind of run those three uh, safety looks, but. Kyle Hamilton is more of a, of a cornerback um, uh, in the slot, and then Marlon Humphrey and Brandon Stevens can do what they do. So if he's out, then you kind of have to rearrange what you're doing in the secondary, and that's why um, you know his knee injury is something that we're all monitoring because it really could swing what the Dolphins, uh, how the Dolphins could attack uh, the Ravens defense. Because he has the most snaps in the slot for the Ravens defensive backs. Nobody blitzes more than he does in that defense. So like you said, it could change the entire structure of that defense. So the the first versus thirty second ranking. Is it because he missed time with injury that he was off the field? Because he's a guy that you probably wouldn't want to take off the field ever, right? Yeah, it's more it's it's more so just when, whenever he's off the field. You know, you know, this knee injury is really the only thing that he's really dealt with. Um, but it's just like when he's off the field. You know, you know, if he's out, you know, maybe they have to put um, Arthur Millette, who's you know a uh, serviceable slot cornerback. But it really just changes. I mean, like Kyle Hamilton, like you said, he, he's going to blitz. He's going to cover. He's like really impactful in run support. So obviously, with those those edge runs, those perimeter runs that the Dolphins like to run, he's going to be very impactful with that if he's able to play. If not. You know, it really does change the complexion of their defense, despite a lot of really uh, good players. It kind of sounds like Jalen Ramsey in a lot of ways, how he kind of frees up the rest of the defense to do what it does, or maybe even Javon Holland. I don't know. There's lots of examples of that here from Miami as well. So good stuff there. But either way, with or without Kyle Hamilton, they still have that front on that defense. And uh, like, how do the Dolphins contain that rush? Maybe a better question is, how do the Dolphins stop the Ravens defense from turning this game on its head with the splash plays? We saw it against a very good Niners offense that I think most folks were picking to just roll their way all the way to the Super Bowl over their last three games and a couple of playoff games in the NFC, but they ran to the Baltimore Ravens and that was not the case there. 54 sacks, 26 takeaways. How does Miami prevent Baltimore's defense from basically making this a non-contest? Well, see, the thing that I think could work in the Dolphins' favor is that they have a lot of uh, tape that they can really reference as kind of a template. You know, in, in recent weeks, the Ravens have played uh, not only the 49ers, uh, but the Los Angeles Rams, who obviously, you know, they all come from the same same Shanahan-style tree. Um, you know, both those teams, I think, had various varying levels of success against the Ravens' defense. You know, 
the 33 to 19, uh, you know, win over the 49ers, I think it kind of um, glosses over, you know, the fact that early on in that game, the, the 49ers did have success, you know, targeting the middle of the field. Uh, they got some explosive runs with Christian McCaffrey. And I think that uh, that's definitely some things that Mike McDaniel and his staff are going to try to key on. Um, but you, when you look at some of the turnovers that they were able to, to force, you know, some of them were kind of unforced errors. Um, sometimes it was a, a matter of the, you know, the picture getting muddied and forcing Brock Purdy to hold on to the ball a lot. And, you know, you, you talk about, you know, style of quarterbacks, I guess you would say two and Brock Purdy are kind of very similar in terms of, you know, anticipation and timing and whatnot. Um, you know, so in terms of muddying the picture, um, you know, if, you know, they can find a way to, you know, read post-snap, pre-snap, kind of get a clear, clear picture um, and, and exploit some, you know, some holes in the coverage, especially the middle of the field. I think that there are yards to be gained against the Ravens' defense, um, but it's a matter of, you know, when you turn over the ball, you can drive all the way down the field, but if you turn over the ball in the red zone or if you're turning the ball over after a couple of successful uh, snaps, um, you know, it's all for naught. Why do you think, uh, this is going a little bit off script on you here, why do you think that the Rams were able to have so much success compared to the Niners for the entirety of that game because I went back and looked and you know PFF tracks gap runs versus zone runs and the Niners are you know the most prominent out zones outside zone team in the NFL along with Miami but they they didn't they didn't shift their model to more man gap whereas the Rams were dead split 14 apiece 50% gap 15% zone why do you think that the the man gap scheme runs had more success against Baltimore yeah well obviously you know we talked about the evolution of the the Shanahan style you know offense and you know the various you know offshoots kind of putting their own their own print on it so and it goes back to personnel as well so it's like if you look at a lot of those successful runs that the 49ers had I mean they're running right behind big Trent Williams at, right. at left tackle so <laughs> makes a difference. yeah it definitely makes a difference and obviously the Rams have kind of evolved over the years under Sean McVay as well where we've seen more inside kind of duo type runs uh, as well so I think it goes down to kind of personnel and yeah. but also keeping in mind what the defense does as well and doesn't do well and trying to exploit that going back to a separate question I asked you earlier this is another good example of how the NFL season is full of highs and lows and you lose a game and everyone thinks you, you stink and you can't make a possible run to the championship but the Baltimore Ravens as good as they've been all year long they're 12 and 3 thanks in large part to a great quarterback and great defense but the losses are so curious because they're teams that you would assume Baltimore would beat but that's not how the NFL works right the Colts the Steelers and Browns I believe at least one of those games was a backup quarterback, and the Steelers game might have been as well, but I can't remember. But they, they wipe out the Lions, a good team. They wipe out the Seahawks. They destroy the 49ers. What do you think happened in those losses? Why do they lose games to teams that they are clearly better than? Yeah, I feel like that's what, like been the one knock on the Ravens in maybe like the past year or two. You know, they're as talented as any team in the NFL, but, you know, they get these big leads, and then all of a sudden they evaporate. And, you know, they're literally, I mean, like, we saw it firsthand week two last year. Um, I, I think that in terms of the, the, the offense, you know, they do go through some lows. Um, they are so predicated on Lamar creating. You know, obviously they have a really good run offense, but that um, is kind of starts with Lamar um, in terms of holding linebackers and, and the defensive front and then him creating with design runs. The passing game, um, for the strides that they've made in the passing game, there are times where it is a bit disjointed. And, and we see, you know, the it's not really the, the on-script plays, but the off scripts kind of second plays when Lamar is running around and kind of, and, and you'll see, you'll kind of notice, if, you know, I know you've watched the tape this year, Lamar's not scrambling or kind of getting out the pocket to run. He's getting out the pocket to kind of reset himself and, and, and throw the ball. But sometimes the passing offense isn't as, uh, um, as cohesive as, as you'd maybe like it to be uh, if you're a Ravens fan. Um, so they do go through some lulls. Uh, and then sometimes, you know, the, the Ravens have a, have a really good pass rush, but I think it's also, you know, we, we talk so much with, 
Miami about how um, rush and coverage, you know, go hand in hand. Um, so I, I don't think that the the Ravens have a singular like dominant presence. You know, I know Matt Bike is having a career year. You know, eleven double digit sacks, um, but I don't know if they have like a singular dominant deep uh, pass rusher that can take over a game. Um, so you know, if you don't have that in key moments, um, again, kind of go back to week two. Like we've seen that if you don't have a guy that can kind of take over that game uh, on the defensive front, you you can be susceptible to you know li- giving up some plays, especially late in games. That's a good way to put that because like they they have so many guys that can win their matchups, but like. Man, watching Micah Parsons was different last week, dude. Just the way he was able to just reset the line of scrimmage, and he was so fast and so quick and so agile. But that's a good point. Even as good of a year as Clowney's having, Owe and, and Matabiki, like you mentioned. Kyle Van Noy, I love Kyle Van Noy's game, still do to this day. Uh, I always finish these podcasts with this question, and in the past I haven't asked how the Dolphins can win the game because a lot of these games have been lopsided affairs. But I will ask because this is probably the biggest game in the NFL for anybody this season. The Ravens can win this game if you fill in the blank, and the Dolphins can win this game if and also fill in that blank. Yeah, I'll say the Ravens can win this game if they limit explosives and hold on in the red zone. You know, again, I think that there are yards to be gained um, for the Dolphins' offense, um, but you know they have been bogged down in the red zone a bit. Um, I do think that they're going to need to score a little bit more than than 22 points uh, this week, and I do think that they're going to have to reach the end zone a couple times. Um, so, you know, if the Ravens do force some turnovers or hold them in the red zone, you know, it can get a little bit dicey. Um, on the other hand, I'll say the Dolphins win if their defensive front can control the line of scrimmage. And I mean in the run game and in the pass game. Um, this defensive front has been so good against the run. Um, and, you know, that's how they get into those, you know, opportunistic, opportunistic third downs where you can uh, kind of let your guys go. Um, but this is a little more of an unconventional run game with Lamar at it. Um, so in the run game and then, you know, in the pass game, you know, there's going to be a lot of off script, like, that's just kind of the nature of the, the Ravens passing offense. Um, but, you know, we just talked to, to, to Ryan Slowick about, you know, rushing and trusting your guys and rushing, rushing a particular way. Um, if they can do that and kind of limit some of those off-script plays, um, you know, I think that the, the Dolphins could get a real season-defining win. You know, we talked about the Dallas game being a narrative-busting uh, win, but this would be like a, a real defining win, you know, uh, going into the last week of the regular season. Division championship on the line here as well. Do you have a score prediction you're willing to put on the air? You don't oh, have to man. if you don't want to. I will. I will <laughs> at the results at the at the cost of you know getting hounded on social media, <laughs> and, and it's it's tough because I think that we talked about. It, I think that the Waddle and Kyle Hamilton injuries, and even and even uh, Javon Holland, who's you know been back at practice, I think that those can swing the game and. and in just a completely different way, depending on who's available. Right now, just kind of the way I think the injury situation is going to shake out, I think that uh, the Dolphins just come up just a little bit short. Uh, I'm, I'm saying Ravens 27-24, but I think this is a, a game that the Dolphins can definitely win. I think that um, there's a lot of matchups that Miami fans should be you know, very optimistic about. All the content I've heard is in that same range. It's going to be a, a close game with three points, three or four points. Whoever wins it, it's going to come down to the fine details. Daniel Oyafusi, the Miami Herald, at Daniel Oyafusi on social. Thank you for your time, as always. And tell the people what you're working on right now, man. Yeah, had a, got a ton of content this weekend, uh, how the Dolphins could stop uh, Lamar Jackson, what this game means uh, for the rest of the season, uh, various updates. You know, Barry Jackson always has his nuggets as well, so definitely <laughs> stay locked to the Miami Herald. Good stuff, man. Appreciate you. All right, so there he goes. Fun chat, as always, with Daniel. Let's go ahead and take our first break right there, come back on the other side, and hear from the assistant coaches. That's next. Drive Time Podcast, your host, Travis Wingfield, brought to you by AutoNation. Segment number two on a Thursday here. Let's go ahead and play some sound from Vic Fangio, who spoke a little bit about Lamar Jackson and the pass rush, how you deal with that guy. I've got three consecutive Q&As here with Vic Fangio talking about the biggest question this week, how do you slow down Lamar Jackson? 
fair share of mobile quarterbacks, yes. Then there's Lamar Jackson. You know, he's unlike anybody else. The only other player that's been like him in the last 50 years is Michael Vick. And um, he, he's a tremendous player. You know, kudos to uh, Ozzie and Eric for picking him, you know. 31 other teams that passed him by, you know, are kicking themselves. He's really improved over the years. He's dynamic with the ball, good passer. You know, he makes their offense go. The pure definition of a great quarterback, there's no one way to play him, you know, because if there was, everybody would do it. So you just have to mix up what you're doing. And, um, you know, and along the way, they have a hell of a run game. And... Um, both from their players' ability, the O-line, tight ends, and the runners, but the scheme of it with uh, Lamar at the helm makes it a difficult task. So there's a lot to prepare for, a lot to defend in this offense. Now, I will say the J.T. O'Sullivan video of Lamar Jackson's game pointed out a few holes I think this Dolphins defense can exploit. And so if we've if we get the you know off version of Lamar and the Dolphins complicate things with him and change the picture and change what he's seeing, there's a chance you could have a slow game. And if that happens, Miami can muddy things up and get themselves a victory. Let's go to the other side of the football here and talk about this Ravens defense and coach Frank Smith, who was asked about the Ravens defensive evolvement from last year in the week two game to now. Here's Frank Smith. I mean, there's just like new coordinator. We were new, uh, you know, new last year as well. So I think like as they've grown in their system as, as as we have you can see guys that are really playing well together communicating intent like they are a very good understanding you know of what schematically they're trying to do and uh they play very well together in their opportunistic defense and um you know obviously they've had some success in the uh, recent weeks so for us it's a great challenge i mean it's uh you couldn't ask for this time of year to, you know, for these great games because, um, you know, as a competitor, you always want to face the best and be at your best. So we're uh, really looking forward to it and uh, be a great challenge because they have a good defense. Made a lot of content this week around adult, rather Ravens safety. Kyle Hamilton had to ask the offensive coordinator, what does he do to make this defense so flexible and adaptive? And we'll find out if he plays in the game on Sunday. But here's Frank Smith on what he does and why his presence is so important for Baltimore. Range, understanding of the system. I mean, you can tell he's, a, he's, he's on his details. Like, you can see him and the guys in the back end uh, communicate well together, are really um, the whole defense overall. You can tell they have a very good understanding. They all know where their role is and inside of it. And, I mean, it's credit to their, you know, coaching staff and their, their program. They're a well-coached team with uh, – very good players who know where they need to be when they need to be there. And, um, you know, I just think it's, uh, you know, a challenge when you play a program like the Ravens because, you know, they've been able to do it for a long time. And now they have another guy who's stepping into a role and playing well. So it'd be a good challenge for us to, on Sunday, to, you know, for us to execute what we want to do. Let's go ahead and keep this thing churning and stay on the topic of the Baltimore Ravens. Had to ask Dolphins running backs coach Eric Studisville about those two linebackers, Patrick Queen and Roquan Smith. I mean, they're, they're two talented backers. Um, you see them on tape. They run, they hit, and I, I think, you know, they're just they're really good players. Um, but the challenge, as always, is is what we're going to do. I mean, we, we know that they're going to line up in certain spots and they're going to be there. And, 
it's a challenge for the front, you know, the guys up front to block them, and it's a challenge for us to find the right spot to put the ball in and to, to hit it downhill where we can and to be aggressive and decisive in how we're attacking the line of scrimmage. So that is the assistant coach recap here for the 17th time this season. We'll talk to those guys one more time next week and then again in the postseason. Before we get to the third and final segment and pick the Week 17 games and our last Thursday night football game of the season, Monday night football already come and gone, I wanted to talk about this because I've been thinking about this, and once again, Travis scanning the social, something I probably shouldn't do. But damn it, if there's anything better than watching the game for three hours, doing two hours of post-game radio with two of my best friends, coming back to the facility and drafting up a rundown, cutting audio, and recording a recap pod that takes about two more hours. If there isn't anything better after all of that than getting home, putting the kids to sleep, going out onto my porch, and enjoying some adult activities while scanning Twitter for the first time in four hours and seeing all the freezing cold takes that you guys bring back up and all the brazen Dolphins fans saying, we told you so, national media, you know, suck it for lack of a better term. It's my favorite part of Sunday, that and the drive home with music as loud as it could possibly go, but I digress. Winning is freaking cool. But also, inside of those Twitter rabbit holes, I come across those accounts. You know those accounts. Tua didn't throw that deep shot to Waddle flat-footed on a pro day shot. Justin Herbert did that in shorts and a headband. That was cool. Like, he's a better player, obviously. Or Chris Greer is still unproven. You have to win a playoff game to justify all of his work. You know, those accounts. And it made me think, and I boiled it down to just this take, that as far as an executive or GM goes, their draft record should not be thought of the lens of that player good, that player bad. Because there's more to a GM than drafting. And the disagreement on Chris Greer's draft record, I don't understand the dichotomy there. It's pretty clear he's one of the best drafters in the National Football League. But outside of that, what determines a good draft? Like everything, everything in this league, right? Context needs to be applied. The context and study to understand well enough through the ebbs and flows of football that we don't flip our entire process on its head after a couple of games, right? It's the exact same thing here. We've done the draft hit exercise. We've talked about the veteran talent acquisition, the UDFA pool this team has conjured up over the last decade to to get starters from that group. Like, I cannot fathom this idea that the offensive line was neglected. They literally signed the biggest left tackle on the market two years ago, the best interior offensive lineman on the market in Connor Williams, to Ron Armstead the first. And there's a line, they joined a line full of first and second round draft picks. And they also signed Isaiah Wynn to a not super cheap veteran contract. They brought in Kendall Lamb, and those guys gave you basically half of a season of good tackle and guard play. They also gave Rob Jones a few years ago a $100,000 guarantee UDFA contract. That's not neglecting the offensive line. There's probably not a position group on the entire team that has seen more investment in this team. That's kind of away from my overall point that I want to make here. And that point is this. What Chris Greer has done is he has been the GM of this team over three coaching tenures. And all he's done for those coaches, which is what I think is the ultimate test of a good GM, is draft and acquire players for the coach's flavor. Now, if that coach wasn't good, then the GM can't possibly be good either, right? Because 
Chris Greer went from giving Adam Gase unimaginative slot-wide receivers who knew his awesome scheme and valued the offensive line less than, you know, less than I value Colin Cowherd's takes. Like, remember that? Like, the offensive guard position? Oh, we can just roll out Jermon Bushrod and Ted Larson and be okay. Like, he literally talked about that. Also, Danny Amendola, Frank Gore, those are my difference makers. Chris Greer went and got those. It was a doomed plan because Adam Gase was doomed, but you get the point, right? How about Brian Flores? He wanted size up front, a blitz-happy defense, man corners. So you go out and you sign Byron Jones. You go out and you draft Brandon Jones. You go out and you draft Raekwon Davis. You go out and you draft Solomon Kinley. Remember him? How about getting Adam Butler? Was there ever a better nose tackle for the Brian Flores defense than Adam Butler? Chris Greer just gets what his head coach wants. Now you get Mike McDaniel, who's a great head coach, who values game changers. Novel concept, right? Who wants superstars in their team? Not me. Mike McDaniel does. So Chris Greer goes out and gets him a roster full of superstars. He's got to be in the running for executive of the year. Deshaun Elliott, David Long, Vic Fangio, Jalen Ramsey. Are you kidding me? This defense couldn't stop a nosebleed last year, and now it's fourth in the National Football League because of what we talked about all year last year, right? The pass rush is really good, but they can't get home because the cornerback play is just not good enough because you're relying upon guys who didn't sign here to play cornerback. Keon Crossan, Justin Bethel, I love those guys. There's a reason they haven't played corner almost ever in their career except for last year. So what do you do but go out and get Jalen Ramsey? Go out and get Eli Apple. Go out and draft Cam Smith, who hasn't played, but you invested in that spot because you knew that if you got that position better, your pass rush would get better because it's a damn good pass rush. So Chris Greer goes out and gets this roster full of superstars, and he should be in the running for executive of the year. And if we get the one seed, this is where I'm going to lose some of you, but we'll go with it. If you get the one seed, and let's say you lose a 35-33 to game in the divisional round because a 45-yard field goal bangs off the upright. Does that change the job that Chris Greer did because we missed one field goal? That's my whole point here. Having these baseline results void of context, that's how you ensure poor decision-making. Because if you're making choices based off of results-based emotional thinking, it's not informed thinking, and you might get lucky, you might luck into a good decision, but what is the job other than getting all the information, applying context, applying knowledge and logic, and making the best decision from that? That's what this team does. That's what has produced an 11-4 football team. And if one kick goes wide in the playoffs, it doesn't change any of that. So the whole idea behind, you know, what makes a good GM, what makes a good draft, what makes a good drafter is a guy that goes out and gets what his coach has asked for. And that's exactly what Chris Greer has done. And now we have a head coach who asked for the right groceries. Chris Greer went and bought them. And now we have a coaching staff cooking up the right recipe for a delicious feast, which is Dolphins 11-4 playing for the top seed in the AFC in week number 17. There you go. Let's go ahead and finish up this podcast on the other side with the week 17 picks. That's all next. Draft Time Podcast, your host, Travis Wingfield, brought to you by AutoNation. Segment number three on a Thursday, the final TNF game of the entire football season. Before we get to that, though, I wanted to to put this thought in the universe because I thought about it. I've been putting more thoughts in the podcast lately. That's what a podcast is. You like the host. You like their thoughts. They give you those thoughts. You like them, right? My thought is this. How about the MVP race? And before we do those game 17, week 17 picks, how about the last couple of weeks, Tua, you know, he can't win a game without Tyreek Hill. 
uh, that cute little SB Nation article that called him Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer because nobody has ever gotten more credit for being carried by other people than Tua Tungavailoa. Get the fuck out of here. I'm so sick of this. Because how about the fact that even though that article got written, Tua went out and diced up the number two passing defense in the NFL without Tyreek Hill, the guy that makes him, right? And then how about engineering a game-winning drive against the number five total defense in the NFL without Jalen Waddell and four backup offensive linemen? (laughs) He's moved to number three in the MVP vote. His numbers are basically with Brock Purdy as best for any quarterback in the National Football League. And if he beats Dallas and then Baltimore here in back-to-back weeks, I think he has to head into week 18 as the favorite for the award. I'm just saying... Just saying. This guy was questioned <laughs> questioned by people that have eyeballs if he could be a starter in the league. <laughs> Ridiculous. Week 17 is here, and it's going to start with the Jets and Browns. Gross. Actually, you know what? Go Jets because um, I wouldn't mind the opportunity for the Browns to fall back a little bit in the seeding. I wouldn't mind if, if things go worst case scenario and the Dolphins have to get in the wild card, I would love that five seed to go play against the Jacksonville Jaguars. So I'm rooting for the Browns in this one. Let's go ahead and cue up the music. A horrible week last week, nine and seven. It takes us to 168 and 72 on the year, which is 70% on the nose. We have to get better. Hopefully it starts with a Jets upset over the Browns. I'm probably crazy for picking that, but I just think that the Jets offensive or defensive line rather against a banged up Browns offensive line and a quarterback who doesn't really escape that well and is prone to the sack fumble could provide some big plays for the Jets defense. Now, Everything I just said applies to the Browns front against the Jets offensive line, but I got the Jets winning an ugly football game here because I think at some point Cleveland has to lose a game as they have played five consecutive backup quarterbacks now in Trevor Simeon with the latest one here against the Jets. So give me the Jets over the Browns on Thursday night. On Saturday, I like the Cowboys to bounce back over the Lions who just had their big emotional win. Cowboys an emotional loss. Typically, that's an easy pick for me. Give me Dallas in that one. Houston over Tennessee. Uh, The Texans have a chance to hang into the wild card playoffs picture here for another week, and they get C.J. Stroud back. Give me Houston to win that game big. I like Chicago over Atlanta. I just don't like Atlanta at all. He really beat the Colts last week. Chicago, I think, is probably one of the teams that's going to have that good second half and have a lot of optimism and hope heading into the offseason. Give me Chicago to win again at home against a warm-weather team, indoor team, rather. Give me the... If Kyle Hamilton plays, I'm picking Baltimore. If he doesn't play, I'm picking Miami. Just going to put it that, that way for you guys. Give me New Orleans over Tampa in the Who Cares game. Give me Buffalo over the Patriots, although go Pats. Philly over Arizona. I'll take Jacksonville over Carolina. Gosh, has anybody fallen harder than the Jacksonville Jaguars the last five weeks of the season? My goodness. They were the one seed four weeks ago, and they lost four games in a row. Indy over Las Vegas. That's actually a big one. And now that the Broncos benched Russell Wilson, uh, Vegas, if they win this game, they get Denver next week. And if Vegas wins both of those games, they have a 68% chance at the seven seed. And if we win one of our final two games, we get the two seed. So go Raiders. I would love to see Aiden O'Connell back in this building on wildcard weekend. That's a pretty good option right there. So give me the Raiders to win that game over. Actually, yeah. Uh, I picked the Colts. Let's, let's go with the Raiders. Let's flip that. I'm picking the Raiders. 
Niners over Commanders. That's an easy one. Seahawks over Pittsburgh. We'll see if Mason Rudolph can continue his run here, but I, I don't, I'm not picking him for it. Chiefs over the Bengals to bounce back after a tough, tough loss to the Raiders last week. I'll take the Broncos over the Chargers and another Who Cares Bowl. And then I'll take the Packers on Sunday night over the Vikings to keep their season alive. So those are the picks. That's the podcast. That's my time. Tomorrow, the great Charles Davis will be on the call for CBS on Sunday. Will join me to break down this matchup. He's always fun to talk to. We also will have the Sunday coverage, man. I'm nervous. I'm excited. I'm everything for this game. We'll go ahead and take you through it, win or lose, though, with the Drive Time podcast, with the post-game show, with all that stuff. So in the meantime, you all, please be sure to subscribe, rate, review the show. Go ahead and follow me on social at Wingfield NFL. Follow the team at Miami Dolphins. Check out the Fish Tank podcast with my guys, Seth and Juice. Check out the YouTube channel for media availabilities, Dolphins Today, and so much more. And last but not least, MiamiDolphins.com. Until next time, fins up. Caroline and Cameron, daddy's coming home, but you're out of town, so I won't see you for a couple of days.